Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week is not only a good friend of mine, but my mentor. Whenever I had a math question or any question, he was always there to help. He has taught me so much over the last 20 years. He's a bookmaker's bookmaker, a better's better, and I'm so honored to have him on. Please welcome Ribs. Ribs, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, Ribs, I always like to start off with, how was life growing up? Well, basically, I grew up in Long Island uh, in a pretty nice area. And, um, you know, it was kind of like led me into what I ended up getting involved in. Um, In the early years, I had a a grandmother who actually ended up living to 107 that uh, had me playing cards at a very early age. I learned how to play gin rummy. Uh, three, four years old, you know, non-gambling gin rummy for fun with my grandmother. And then at some point, um, I guess it was around the same age, my parents had bought these um, multiplication flashcards where like it would, they would show me 12 times seven. And then, you know, uh, I learned through memory the answers because they basically hit me with like an hour of those a day for let's say a two month period. So by around four, I knew the answers, but not why, you know, it wasn't that, it wasn't like more like a system. It was more of just seeing the answers over time. My memory was very good. So by, you know, late four year old area, I could know the answers to anything 20 times 20 or any combination of numbers below that. and of course, in, in, in the wealthy area that I lived in, in Long Island, I had uh, parents that uh, kind of spoiled me and gave me whatever I wanted. So my father would always buy me lots of like baseball cards and things like that. And even in, I remember in kindergarten, like at four and a half, five, that was the early years of having that feeling of winning and losing, kind of like gambling style. We had other kids with cards they, you know, this was back in the days of flipping cards or scaling cards. And then it became this game called colors because the cards had a color on the bottom. I don't even remember exactly how you won and lost, but I remember days coming home from school with more cards than I started and coming home with, with, with less cards than I started. And that uh, winning and losing, you know, kind of was uh, a little bit of the prelim to having the winning and losing in the, in the gambling business. Wow, that's unbelievable. That's great. So you just just from four and a half, five years old, you Something pretty much like that. Were, were gambling. Yeah. In early elementary school, I'm going to say like seven, eight. Somehow uh, I learned this through, I guess, either either my father or somebody. There was something about, and this was like uh, kind of like a 1950s and 60s thing, where you could pick three MLB guys that were playing. It was called three guys to get six hits. And I forget what the odds were. You gave the player like two to one or it was something like that. They had to select three guys to get six hits. So basically in elementary school, I remember being like the bookmaker for that. Guys would, you know, bet quarters, dollars, whatever. And that was like another little thing that was like a gambling thing that that went on. I think that went on all the way to like fifth or sixth grade, but I'm not sure. Wow, that's so cool. One of the one of the interesting things was that my math career was real strong at an early age. Um, even at like five or six, I remember one time the teachers bringing in a large jar of jelly beans. Uh, it was Easter time, and it was some kind of like to pick what you thought how many jelly beans were in there, and I gave, uh, they asked me first for some reason, and I gave what I, you know, I I didn't have the depth thing down to a science. So I gave an answer that was extremely low without realizing it, because I was kind of counting the outside of the jar and then not realizing of the depth inside the jar. But all the other kids, knowing that I was smart in math, all guessed within, like, let's say I'm doing this from memory. If I guessed 3,000 jelly beans, 
they would all guess like between 2,500 and 3,500. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out to be like 34,000 or something <laughs> yeah. ridiculous like that. So it was, yeah. And the, the other interesting thing is when algebra started and then geometry and all those other maths, I was horrible. I never learned any of them. My skills in school kind of ended with math around fifth, sixth grade. Once, once it went to the tricky mess, algebra I handled okay, but I wasn't that good. And all the other mess completely struggled, only passed because teachers like me, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do ge uh, you know, geometry, tri trigonometry and all those other things. And I was never good at any of the other subjects. I was always poor at reading and comprehension, you know, never, never tested that well. Um, as far as, you know, getting involved in sports, uh, my career, you know, I mean, one of the instrumental things was that my father always had season tickets to the Mets. The Mets moved uh, to Queens in 1964 when I was six. And uh, we always went to a lot of games. And my father also, as a Mets fan, when the games were at night, which most of the games were at night, would have his radio on loud so I could hear all the way uh, from his room because my mother didn't allow me to stay up past a certain time. So my father was always uh, kind of enabling me to hear the games till the end, which ended at like 10 or 11 o'clock. So I was always a, a Mets fan growing up. And, and that was, a, a, you know, a, one of the reasons I got, you know, maybe more into the sports. So baseball, you know, I had baseball cards. Being a Mets fan, is it safe to say that baseball was a first love when it comes to sports? Yeah, I was more involved in baseball than anything else. I mean, we used to watch uh, – you know, track and field on TV and fake wrestling and all these other things. But I was never that, not as interested in like basketball, football, things like that. I mean, I would go to maybe one game a year as a kid, like to either a Jets or a Giants football game. And, um, you know, maybe like in a Knicks basketball game, maybe a, a Rangers hockey game, you know, once in a while. It was more of a Mets baseball thing. And obviously, Baseball was a big part of the year, so that kept me uh, kept me going. So your your first encounter with gambling was, you know, booking these kids in, in, in elementary school about the six hits thing. The first, you know, two players to six hits. When when does sports gambling now start to even take more of of a of a, a seed being set? When I was in eighth grade, the health teacher Bobby Baker, I wonder if he's still around. Uh, he got me involved where I could start making straight bets on sports. Uh, I thought I was real great at that time. Basically, what I did was on Wednesday, every Wednesday morning, I would leave. You were allowed to leave school for lunch or whatever, but I would go to the stationery store and buy all the tout sheets would be there for the football games and baseball. Usually it was football when it was tout sheets. So it was like, let's say... Uh, Wednesday mornings, I'd buy the New York Post, which, you know, had seven or eight guys selecting the pro football games for Sunday and things like that. Mm -hmm. And all these tout sheets that, you know, would have, you know, Oklahoma 55 to nothing. And you'd look it up and you'd see in the paper they were favored by only 20 or whatever. And, and you know, th that started with me making some like 50 and $100 bets, um, you know, through this teacher that, that helped me get down. I don't remember doing poorly, but I, I don't know how I could have come out other than losing, but I don't kind of remember losing during that era, but maybe I, I held my own. Um, and then I'm just trying to think from that, there was a lot of poker, uh, you know, uh, growing up where I did, there was a lot, it was a Jewish area. A lot of the kids got bar mitzvah at 13 and a lot of us played poker after school. And we basically used the bar mitzvah bonds as the money and it was kind of interesting dynamic because the parents didn't really know about it because they just they didn't mature for seven years so we all had our bar mitzvah bonds like in a shoe box basically in a closet you know uh waiting for them to mature over a seven-year period where we could you know use them as money when we were 20 but we were able to kind of use them um we just had to establish what they're really worth because a, a 50 dollar bond you only paid like $30 for it was something like that. And it matured over the seven years to the 50. So I don't exactly remember how we did it, but I remember that that was a good, uh, because I taught a lot of these kids how to, how to play poker. 
I ended up having a, a very big edge in those days. This was back when it was five car stud, seven car stud, and draw poker only. Is is sports now? When does the sports part get the in? The sports the sports started. I met a guy. Uh, he was known as Gary Fox, and he was uh, betting for a group. And he he took me on uh, around when I was fifteen. The way I got to meet him was. Uh, around 15, I started working with a guy that uh, uh, was a, you know, Brooklyn bookmaker, kind of a famous guy. He's, you know, he passed away about 10 years ago. But I I used to uh, bet with him small amounts. And I used to meet him, uh, I would say, uh, once a week when the figure got to a few thousand or more. And I met him at the same diner in uh, on Cross Bay Boulevard for, you know, whatever, uh, 40 weeks out of the year for you know several years and he he um I, I don't know how it started but he got me introduced to some other people and one of them was this guy gary who was a part of a betting group and very sharp by the way so i was putting bets in for them with you know, I, by then i had four or five places i was betting with and um and I, you know, and I guess they liked using guys that were, weren't 18 because for the legal situation, if, if something, God forbid, happened, I was, you know, less than 18 and not that much bad could happen. I was struggling with my mother in the house who kind of didn't want, you know, she kind of knew what was going on and it, you know, kind of led to some battles with her. She, she kind of blamed my father for enabling me to uh, continue doing the betting, you know, from the house and stuff like that. But, anyways, that was that was uh, that. But um, so so you were you were moving for, you were moving betting money moving for a sharp group at fifteen right. years yeah, old. That's betting, amazing. Yeah, they were basically guys that were betting like you know NBA totals and things like that. They 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 were ahead of the you know ahead of the curve. I don't even know who they were following or whatever, but they they were pretty much like in the fifty-five to fifty-eight percent winner category. And and I was usually collecting. And and what kind of did they free roll you? Did you take a piece for yourself? I I, do, I don't even remember, except that I think that I remember a situation where I was turning in less than I was really getting, gotcha. and they knew about it. So I I guess I was betting with them, and I don't think I was getting a free roll at that time. It might have been before they created that aspect of it. Perfect. So, wow. So you, re from an early age, you just find out that you actually could beat, you know, win betting sports where, you know, a lot of people don't realize that until they're well into their twenties, some 30, some never. So you knew that at 15. I didn't know it for sure. You know, there'd be times when I lose two, three, four days in a row and I would start to doubt everything. But in general, uh, you know, in looking back on it, I was doing pretty good during that era, but I wasn't accumulating large sums of money or anything, but I was grinding out. It was also like an ego thing to be dealing with people 30 and 40 years older than me and picking up and dropping off money and stuff like that. It wasn't the, you know, the greatest thing for me to be doing, but it, at the time it was feeding an ego, I guess. Wow. That's just, uh, that's just amazing. Uh, and w were there other kids your age that were involved or you were one of a, well, a there was a couple for, yeah, a couple from my neighborhood were involved a little bit but I was kind of like the ringleader of of all the uh, the mischief or whatever you want to call it all right so let's talk about how you graduate from that then so you know when does that end and what's the next step right well what happened was I I, I started to play poker in like poker rooms in like Queens in the basement of the Monte Excelsior and some of these places. And I learned that a pretty fast amount of time, the competition was, was much tougher. So besides struggling to win, I was probably a losing player. I also learned that I didn't, I didn't like my eyes burning from people smoking cigarettes. That was an era where everybody was smoking cigarettes in these card rooms. And, and that kind of turned me off from poker and I never really went back to the poker because by then the sport started to, you know, build a little bit. So the poker career kind of ended, uh, I'm going to say around when I was 16, 16 and a half. Okay. So, so the poker thing ends and now you're, you're, you're still moving yeah, for Gary Fox. 
Yeah, then we got then we got kind of I kind of got tossed by my mother from the house in a nice way. So I I actually moved. I graduated where I went to high school in Port Washington. They had something called modular scheduling, and I was able to graduate in 11 years instead of 12 because I just took like a few extra classes and you could finish, uh, you know, in, in 11th grade. So I moved out of, uh, instead of going away to college, I moved out of the house into a, uh, a new apartment building. And I actually, I just got a one bedroom place on the 32nd floor of a nice uh, place with a five bridge view. And, and uh, I, I just turned, I'm going to say it was like 17 and a half. I, I wasn't 18 yet for sure. And, um, and that was a whole other experience. I got to, you know, uh, I, I was living with, you know, obviously most of the people in the building were much older than me. Um, I remember actually going to visit my sister in San Francisco. And that was like the year they came out with drawstring pants. That was like a big deal. And I remember bringing a whole suitcase of them uh, back to give as gifts to people. And I kept some for myself. And then somebody kind of said to me, I should get like the V-neck doctors type uh, shirts and the people in the building will think I'm like a doctor. That was before, <laughs> I think, before the Doogie Hauser program. But anyways, I was walking around this building, you know, basically as a small time bookmaker um, and, 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 you know, drawstring pants. And I kind of looked like a doctor. People were giving me all kinds of looks <laughs> like maybe this guy's a doctor. I couldn't funny. figure out why I was, why I was there. That's funny. So were you, you were booking right out of the apartment? Uh, yeah. And, and it led, I, I, you know, I got, first I was, it was still in the, in the era of, no, you know, no computers, rundowns on the phone. Basically we had two sessions a day. I would roll out of bed at 11.59 AM every day. And it was one session was from 12 to two. And then you didn't do anything from two to six. And then you had, this is Eastern time, obviously. And then the second session was from six to eight. Some guys were six to seven thirty, and um, basically I was booking uh, mostly pro guys, you know, pro betters, and some I was moving for. But it was mostly like um, high volume, low profit margin type stuff, um, which, which uh, you know, maybe I was only dealing with twenty something people. This was back in the day where there was only like seven or eight guys booking in the New York area. And I wasn't playing with guys like on the West Coast and Vegas or anything like that. And, and, you know, this was more like 1976, 77 uh, until about 1983. Wow. So now the business, when do you start seeing the business grow where you start, you know, people are saying, wow, this kid, you know, he's, he's honorable. He pays off his debts and, he, you know, he, he gives a good line. He gives a good price. When, do you, when does your reputation now start to rise in the New York area? Well, I don't, you know, a lot of it's fuzzy, the memory, but basically one of the things that this was back in the era when they started to change the hockey from the old style lines, one and a half, two, like that, you know, where you was even money, you were laying two goals or taking one and a half, hmm. even money to like what we call now, uh, I guess it was like the Canadian line, one and a half, you know, favored money and plus one and a half plus juice. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I was one of the first guys that was dealing a very thin hockey line. And then because I was very involved in the baseball moving for people, I created something where I let uh, sharp guys bet me into a three cent line, but it was force bet. They had to bet the whole card for equal amounts. So I had guys basically betting the entire card. I would be 19, come back 16, 21, come back 18. And then when they were done betting, I would move the line either one or two cents. And then I had somebody else doing the same thing. It was kind of like a one at a time situation. And I would grind out pretty good money over the course of a year, but it started, you know, some bigger numbers. And let's say one or two times a year, I would get stiff by somebody or shorted or slow paid. So my profit margin was extremely small, but I didn't realize it because on paper I was doing really well. So a three cent line back then, unheard of. Or, yeah, we were dealing. We were dealing like for twenty thousand a game. As long as you bet the same amount in every game, you know the, the the amounts that were being bet back then 
from the pros were a lot higher than they get from any single bookmaker now. There was a lot more. I mean, I remember in, in 1981 when it just started to spin into computers and ending in 82, that my volume for that year was almost $2 billion with only 26 or 27 guys. <laughs> there was some serious betting going on. You know, I had a Amazing. lot of guys asking me to move games from 100K, 150. I had a lot of outs by then. And a, a small out would take how much and a big out would take how much? Like, I would say the, the bigger guys were, were all taking, you know, 10 or 20,000. And, 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 you know, some were taking 100,000 in pro football. And, and uh, there were a lot of the smaller guys that were, let's say, only three to 5,000. But because you were afraid to w win too much, you might only bet them 2,000 so that you could stay alive with them. And, you know, if you got ahead 20,000 for the week, you kind of slow played them for the rest of the week. Amazing. It's crazy. Small guys back then were three and 5,000, where today a guy booking 5,000 a game is like a monster. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, the, the, in my mind, the business has gotten harder on both sides of the fence for the last, you know, I mean, it kind of peaked around when computers started. So you're talking about 1980, like 38 years of the business getting at least 1% worse every year on, on a lot of aspects, including, you know, getting paid and things like that. There's not, as, there's not a lot of honor in the business like there was back then. Yeah, well said. So let's talk about some of the sharp groups you encountered because back then there were, there were just so many of them. Um, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Um, any come to mind? Well, the, the guys that, that uh, you know, ended up owning Pinnacle, were they, were, they came on the scene in 1980 and they, they quickly, uh, you know, they were like an office in New York and basically... It, you know, it became very, uh, it took a little time, but I started to realize that they were dealing different numbers than everybody else. So pre-computers, you'd call six guys for rundowns and everybody would have four in the game and they might have three and a half dog 15. And I started to realize I was bringing them money every week. So I knew they were ahead of the curve. Later on, like a year or so later, I started to move for them and I started to understand that they had a computer program and, you know, they made this game nine and everybody's dealing at one. And they, they had a lot of plays and they had, you know, way the best of it. And, and you know, I, I probably paid them a couple of million dollars, but I was making money with them because whatever I was playing for them, I was playing for myself also, although I was turning in most, you know, 95% to them. They were way ahead of the curve. Wow. And, they, so, you know, they were the ones that got, got Pinnacle going and, I think, uh, you know, they did very well there. So other groups, um, any, any else besides the computer group? That's probably the well, most there was, famous. There, there was the kosher guys on baseball mm -hmm. that were extremely good on baseball. And there was also um, an, another another guy, I guess I don't want to really mention his name, but there was another guy out of uh, out of Long Beach that was extremely sharp in baseball, and I was moving for him. It was the Curtis brothers. They were extremely sharp in baseball. They were like the buyback guys. They waited for everybody to overmove the game, and they stepped in. All the guys that I was moving for in baseball were winning. And, and basically, the, the bookmakers back then were smarter than they are now. But over the course of these 38 years where the business got worse 1% every year, one of the things that's happened is that the quality of the intelligence of the booking – including these Vegas places and whatever is so poor that it, it's too easy for the players. And, and, and it just makes for a much harder situation when, you know, when you're playing with offices that are just copying, you know, Chris and Pinnacle that they're getting dragged all over the map and everybody's really betting. And, you know, you know, the, the stuff involving the manipulation kind of, you know, I'm too old now at 62 to really, you know, be super involved in, in, in the, on the betting side. But I still see all the, all the stuff that goes on and, and the new owners of Pinnacle um, where I have positions where I need them to beat customers. They, they make plenty of mistakes and they're not, you know, they, they can't beat a, a middle of the road guy because basically, 
you know, you can play them in the morning when their limit is 500 or a thousand and drag them 18 or 19 cents and waste, you know, a thousand dollars in juice and then make your bet for a hundred thousand the other way when everybody's copied, you know, them and Chris or whatever, when the lines, you know, plus 30, when the game started at 18. So, I mean, there's just so much of that. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of not, I was always kind of a, a true guy that only bet what I really liked. I never bet opposite, but after a while it became so obvious that that's what everybody else is doing that I had to kind of join the party or I was going to really suffer. Yeah, I'd love to get into that a little bit later, but that's, you know, the manipulation today is, is a big part of, of, of how you just earn it. Just because, like you said, everybody's just copying. You're riding high in the early 80s, betting and booking. How long do the good times last? Um, basically, uh, I, I had a good run from about then till February of 83. Basically, back in the very early 80-81 era, was right when computers were coming in, and and my edges because we weren't uh, we were just giving lines on the phone uh, rundowns. Uh, that was an easier way uh, for bookmakers to make business uh, and and profitable business than generally uh, when the computer started and everybody could look and see the same lines and have the same information. But basically, I did very well in eighty eighty one. And um, leading up, uh, 82 was actually a very good year, but then it all kind of fell apart quickly in the beginning of 83. My business model in that early 80s period, pre-computers, was basically dealing with pros only. I had very few people that I was dealing with, but high volume. And we did a lot of cross-booking. At that time, cross-booking was, you know, kind of something that would be made up where you were kind of betting without juice against somebody else. There were different ways of doing it, but it led to me eventually deciding because some of the guys were even, you know, I considered sharper than I was. I ended up in a situation where we deal uh, dealt. Uh, it started with baseball. We would deal a three cent line, like 29, come back 26, but it was force bet and you had to bet an equal amount in every game for the day. So if there was 11 games, I would make a three-cent line, deal with one guy. He could bet 20000 30000 as long as he bet an equal amount in every game. And then I would move the line up one or two cents, depending on who it was, for the next guy. And I had six or seven guys that I was cross-booking with, so most of my decisions were basically uh, based on that. Uh, unbeknownst to me, because I was very young at that time, there wasn't enough margin in there to cover the bad things that happen in, in this business, which is like somebody goes bad and doesn't pay and all these other things. So on paper, I was squeezing out, you know, one and a half, 1.6, 1.7 million a year on a zillion dollars volume. But at the end of the year, there would have been already two or three uh, guys, you know, that went bad and disappeared or, you know, needed long-term payment plans. So there wasn't really a lot of profit in there, but, but, by, by the end of 82, you know, I, I had built up a pretty good bankroll for somebody, uh, you know, 23, 24. I, I, had, I had like three put away and, and I was doing pretty good. What happened in the beginning of 83 is I got caught in this new football league that came out, the Herschel Walker one. I guess Troy was the Trump. Trump was, uh, I think, the owner of the league or whatever. What was that, the USFL or something like that? I think so, yeah. Yeah, well, oh. anyways... So what happened was I uh, I was, you know, on the ground floor of that league, but unaware of, of the, the problems with the league. There was a lot of, uh, you know, players that weren't making that much money. And, you know, later on, I realized that I should not have been taking so high in that league. And one of the other problems was is that I had uh, big players that liked to bet, um, let's say, for example, one of the players liked to bet, 15 team if reverses like in a round robin style and what i would do is i would chart all those bets at 1.5 like i thought you were supposed to but one day the guy went one in 14 one winner 14 losers and i had written so much business against him to squeeze out against my charts of 1.5 that i ended up losing like 300,000 on the day with the guy going one in 14 
So th there was a lot of things that, you know, like you always think you know better than everybody else. And that's how everybody is in this business. I had a big ego and I, and I, and I let things kind of get out of hand. And then I did make a lot of money on the Super Bowl that, that uh, 83 was a Redskins Miami Super Bowl. But soon after that, the US, that football league and everything, I got carried out over like a two to three month period. And it became so depressing and stressful for me that I decided to take off for a few years and go into some other ventures. Wow. Amazing. So, okay. So, you know, you're riding high, you hit rock bottom and, and then you go into other ventures. Uh, what other ventures did you go into and when did you come back to gambling? Okay. Well, basically I never completely dropped the gambling, but I basically dropped the, 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 uh, the having to be doing it every day. What had happened was there, I guess when the computers came at the end of 81, uh, there was a lot of new guys on the scene, one of which eventually became the owner of Pinnacle at that time. And I got involved in, in doing some moving for some people. So I was still making some money from it. But what had happened was the family had had a food distributor business. And in order to get my head back on straight and, and, and kind of build up my mental again, I started helping uh, family in that food business for, it was pretty much all the way, until about 88, I think. But I was still dabbling in, this, in the sports and earning a little bit of money from it. But I didn't have uh, uh, you know, a clear picture of what I really wanted to do going forward. And, and um, you know, during that period, I had gotten divorced the first time and, and uh, you know, all these other things that basically took place. From 88 to like 99, I had a very you know, kind of grindy type of uh, life in the sports stuff and 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 the, the the food business actually had gotten sold in 93 and i had made some income from that and uh there was there was a few things that i did but there was nothing exciting that it's even worth talking about i decided to go to curacao um in 2000 let's see 99 i was back and in 99 i was moving big volume for some guys especially in baseball and then i decided to go to curacao to get a legal license and open up like a kind of like a, a betting office. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I went there, I guess it was the end of 2000 or maybe the very beginning of 2001. Yeah. This um, is, this is the first time you and I met ribs when you okay. were, I, I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, I was, I was meeting you and you pull up in a limousine right in midtown Manhattan and um, we wind up going to some, I think it was at Katz's Deli or some deli had a hot pastrami on rye. And, you know, and I was like, wow, this is great. And you were telling me all your ideas about going to Curacao, opening up a big shop that you're only going to be taking, you know, super sharp action. And I was just a young, young guy back then, 2000, 2001, just getting my feet wet in the business. And I saw you as a larger than life figure. And I still do. I still admire you so much. But you know, you had such a, a foresight to be able to do something because that's when the internet was kind of still young and people were starting to go offshore and stuff. Um, what made you decide to do that? Did anybody convince well, you? Did you? What happened was I was friendly with the uh, with the owner of Pinnacle. They were in Curacao, and I had helped them with some of their uh, statistical stuff involving money lines. I was always like a money lines guy. And, and not really a point spread guy, you know, uh, in football and basketball, things like that. So I, I did some helping, helping him or whatever. And then I kind of liked Curacao. Um, at that time, there was the start of, of having problems with marriage number two. But basically, I ended up with an office in Curacao that was like more betting than anything. But we also booked like a small amount of customers. Then I decided to acquire another small uh, book that was not doing well and had some financial problems. Um, and, and I ended up kind of growing the booking part, but I kept the betting part going. And unfortunately, I did really well there on paper, but the, the way that the monies uh, work, you had to use uh, people from that country to do the banking and, 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 and also I, I made the mistake of hiring, uh, somebody involving, you know, involving the pay and collect side that turned out to get involved with that NBA ref guy. And he kind of embezzled some funds. 
So there was a lot of things that happened. And I saw the handwriting on the wall because I was winning every week. I thought I was ahead three, four million. And then all of a sudden they're telling me I, I don't have enough money to pay this guy and that guy. And I was always a bad businessman and good at gambling. But anyway, so what I did is I called Chris and I talked to Mickey and Mickey said to meet him in Miami. And then we worked the deal and I brought the business uh, to their place in that was the beginning of 2003. At that time, I had kind of a handshake deal uh, with them, and, and we were kind of splitting 50-50 what I brought. And uh, those days were, were, were good for me, you know, mentally or whatever. They, they paid off some uh, minor league debt that I had, and we were doing really well on paper and, and worked with the, um, the, the guys in Savannah with the, with the big uh, sports place. Uh, it was a little bit of a struggle because I had a strong personality with a lot of opinions. My opinions were more on the gambling side and their opinions were more on the results side. And there, there was a little bit of an incident once where we had won 29 days in a row. And then there was a day where uh, an NBA game fell one and the line in the game had been one and a half and I needed the favorite on the spread and the dog on the money line. And we lost like 97K to the game. I remember to this day. And I got an aggravating phone call from the old man the next morning, <laughs> not, not acknowledging the 29-day winning streak because I hadn't talked to him probably more than once in the whole 29 days. But he acknowledged the, the minus 97K on that <laughs> game. And, th and that led to the separation of, of that business because I, I was a hothead also. And, and uh, you know, whatever. But, you know, we're very good friends to this day. He's a, he's a great guy. He's, he's, he's mellowed out a lot, and I've mellowed out a lot. And um, so the bottom line is, you know, that was just – that led to that situation breaking up. And then I basically was in Costa Rica kind of loving life here, um, uh, you know, being separated from the second wife and whatever. And I just kind of built a life here, and I've been here ever since in Costa Rica – uh, you know, for 17 years, and, well, and uh, I've enjoyed it. When you split up from that office now, and things, you know, you do you wind up going on your own um, again? How was that? You know, did you build up enough of a bankroll now? To what, yeah, what I did is I, I started with kind of like a an agent status type business where I had certain sports books that I represented, and I got certain players to play there, and I was guaranteeing the money both sides – but I was making a small amount of commission money. Sometimes the commission money was done like Pinnacle did it on volume where you would get like 0.4 of 1% on the volume that's bet. And sometimes it was done sheet style where you got a 25 or 50% or somewhere in between a red black sheet where if the players lost, you won. If the players won, there was a makeup figure. And, you know, so that business was, uh, good because it didn't have a lot of risk involved, but of course the risk was involved in the settling and hoping that everybody paid. So I did okay with it, but I didn't, I didn't get rich from it because I was always the first guy people would decide not to pay if they went bad because I was a pacifist and I wasn't going to ever bother anybody for the money. So in this business, every single person has their sheet of how many people that they, you know, we're all owed money, you know, once you get to a certain level. I honestly, of all the people I've ever talked to, when, when I just hear the numbers of the people that owe you money, I, it's just unbelievable how, you know what I mean, you're able to overcome it because it's, it's, it's just incredible um, how, 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 you know, you know, on paper, um, you have a gazillion dollars uh, uh, on paper that, that these guys owe right. you. How you know, I've, I, I've never I've never been able to deal with it. In other words, it's one of my biggest problems. I'm, I'm mentally like numb and shocked from having all these people owe me. And some of them still, you know, call me and occasionally make a small payment or whatever. But it's the number one thing that wants me to kind of get closer to, you know, I'm really close to retiring now is that it just it's so uh, painful to recall some of the situations. I mean, there were guys that, you know, had uh, like emergencies and I lent the money on top of what they owed me. And, 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 and it just, you know, to get, you know, to get, you know, kind of screwed every which way from various things. Some of it, 
you know, was was de dealable, not so much the amounts, but I had made money off the people over years. But I've had ones where the guy won 300000 got paid. The next week he lost 300000 and he didn't pay. And, and, and the person guaranteeing the money is worth $10 million and decides not to pay. I mean, it's, 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 it's just incredible. incredible. It's incredible. And you know what, honestly, you know, in, in this business, reputation is everything. And you hold one of the best reputations of everybody um, that, I, that I deal with. You're, you know, uh, so high on that list. And, and you're so, you, you know, despite how many people have treated you wrong, you've always been so honorable and you've always um, done the right thing. And that's a big credit given how many people have done you wrong for you to still be able to, uh, to continue and, and, and just be honorable because that, that's all you have oh. at the end of the day is, is your, your name. It's easy to be honorable when you're making money and you have money to pay people. Mm -hmm. So I don't put myself, you know, in such a high thing. The people that have money and that make money in the business are very good at paying. It's, it's the, the problem is, is that right now you have a situation where it gets kind of worse every year. You have, I would say most of the money is on the player side and there's a lot of offices that are on the weak side or open up with very little bankrolls. And then, and then you have a situation where I think it's play, it's more advantage to be a player than a book. So there's like a lot of math involved, but you know, a player can play or pass and the bookmaker stuck taking what comes in. So my, my feeling is this, I, I, I see it as a situation where the industry is getting much, much harder every year. There's a lot of desperados. A lot of them are out of the Vegas area or whatever. Um, there's, there's not that many honorable, you know, people that are the pros that, you know, the ones that are, you know, recreational, but have a lot of money and pay, they're few and far between. And there's, it's kind of like a big fight over all those customers because there's not that many left. And those are the ones that you really need to make sure that your bottom line is a plus. But, you know, I, I, I see it as a situation where, you know, it, it does, it, my, my chances of making money become harder every year, but I still have edges where I make, you know, some money, but it's much harder to make, to maintain making the same money that you made the year before. Yeah, a hundred percent. I can't disagree with you on that. Um, I think one of the biggest things that, that, that you stand out ribs more than anybody else is that, you, you know, you were always a betting bookmaker. Um, you always bet. Um, and I think that that it just gives you an edge, you know, historically, the guys that were always betting bookmakers that I've seen have always been so successful because you kind of understood both sides of the counter. Would you agree to that? Well, my, my edge was always in the, in the arbitrating side. Mm -hmm. when, when, when I wasn't the guy that really, uh, in, in most cases that was really doing the work to be like a handicapper. What would happen is. I knew that if a, if a NFL game went from six to seven, I knew that the first half line wasn't supposed to stay at three. And, and I knew kind of where to put the, the smaller pools to get bets. I basically set up traps and get bets on the money lines in first halves. And I was always trying to kind of break even in the main pool, you know, on the, on the things that were flying around. Because, I, you know, especially college sports, even though I got numbers from a couple of guys that I respect, I never really trusted, uh, you know, I felt that it was player's advantage. It was too hard for line makers. They got to make, you know, when, when before the pandemic, there's there's 80 games, you know, in college basketball on a Saturday. How the hell are they going to know if, if somebody makes a line 14 that really should be, you know, four, you know, in some uh, extra game conference or, you know, Middle Tennessee State or something like that. So uh, my deal was I played defense on the, on the things I didn't really know, but I knew that based on where the games were ending up, where to put the money lines and the first halves to try to get a bet that I wanted, you know, to get, end up on the right side at a value number. I remember you, you know, explaining this to me on team totals, probably 15 years ago when they were in their infancy stages. Um, and I remember you, you know, it was such a big edge with these team totals. Do you still see that today? Are the team totals an efficient market? I, I, I'm not, uh, I, I kind of dropped all that alternate lines and team total stuff. I, I became too old to work that hard. But the, the edges were, were severe because 
any any big move on a game in any sport should affect every other pool that's involved. And and those kind of pools were all set up on auto move by the, by the offices because they they can't you can't have enough line guys. Your overhead would be too high to watch every component of every you know situation. So the idea was at that time, let's say baseball team totals. If a total on a game was going from nine, you know, to nine and a half over, and the team totals, you know, were 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 four under, you know, or something like that, there was always you could get value because they hadn't been touched. As long as you move fairly fast, when the thing is steamed. Um, Technology-wise, um, has advanced obviously over the, the in the last ten twenty years. Um, has have you seen, you know, with respect to robot betting and respect to auto moving and stuff like this? Um, has that, you know, have you seen that um, in the business? And is that is the best technology always going to prevail, or is the sharpest mind going to overcome that? Um, I would say the sharpest mind has an edge over that. But uh, let's put it this way: if I if I had an office that had hundreds of players and a lot of them were square players. I would love to use one of those, uh, you know, bomb products or whatever that that certain places have. That it's like an auto mover, uh, you know, to have some some less people working. And I, I think that the, the, those machines, when set up right, and having you know one smart guy oversee it in case in, in case it goes haywire. A lot of the people that listen to this podcast, it's called Be Better Betters. Um, you know, some guys are up and coming in the business. Some guys are pro and want to maybe or semi-pro want to turn pro or maybe they're pro and they want to just take their game to the next level. What advice would you give somebody that's either starting up or that just wants it, that's been in the game for a while that wants to take it to the next level? Um, I don't know. Like part of me always tells people to find another thing to do because I kind of wish if I would have started all over again, for, you know, 40 plus years ago, it's been a rough, you know, uh, stressful uh, existence. But if they if they think that they can emotionally handle the, you know, ups and downs and all the crap that comes with this business, then I would say that they just have to know that every year they're going to learn stuff and they're going to look back and say, oh, I, I thought it was it. Don't think that you know too much. Let you're going to learn things every year and kind of each year improve your chances of winning um, just based on, you know, natural things that happen. even just feel. I'm more of a feel guy. And there's things that I thought, you know, going way back. And now I, I kind of like, you know, completely have gone come full circle. And, and of course, rules change in sports. There's so many things that you have to keep up with. But basically, you know, um, it's a way to make, you know, make money uh, without having to work that hard if you get it set up the right way. It's always easier to let other people work for you. So people that, you know, get players and if they can figure out how to put them in a place and, and, and make a percentage of what they're going to lose, it's probably an easier way to go than to try to make money yourself. But, you know, everybody's different. And some guys, there's so much talent uh, you know, young guys uh, with these, you know, math models and things like that. That's way over my head, but I understand why they would work. You know, they, they have these simulators and things like that. I, I can understand why it, it would work. Although in some cases it throws out things that they might say is a play and I would be able to tell them why it's not a play, but I don't, you know, I, I don't have the time in my life to spend to stop guys from a few things. Sometimes, it, it, you know, it, it, even though it'll come out a certain way, there's a reason for it. And I kind of picked up on that uh, in a few cases. You mentioned the emotional uh, ups and downs. Um, how big How big is that? Because I know, you know, you've been up and down and, you know, it, it's such an emotional roller coaster. How does one, you know, handle something like that in this business? Right. Well, let's put it this way. I've always had this fear of going broke because I've gone broke. I went broke in February of 83. I mean, I had some money after that, but that feeling of, of being, you know, having a lot and then having nothing is a difficult one. Since then, I've had like two bad periods. They actually are always the years that ended, ended in a three. 93, <laughs> I had a bad year. 
And 2003 was the year that I got robbed in Curacao for a couple million and had to come uh, to Costa Rica. But since 2003, I've had a really good run. And even like in 2013, I, I said, well, it would be four decades in a row that I've gone broke in a year ending in a three. So I was thinking of sitting out 2013, but it turned out to be probably the best year I'd ever had. So, you know, th there's, a, you know there's so many addictive features to this uh, gambling stuff that, you know, it's hard sometimes. I, I lose confidence very easily if I lose three or four days in a row. Even though I've done this for 40 years, I could lose confidence. Um, you know, sometimes I, I take full days off now because I have people to do things because I just, you know, sometimes just can't deal with the long days and, and, not, and you know, not having – sometimes you, you blow a big lead in something and you're not ready the next morning, or at least I'm not. You, you mentioned that you're close to retiring. You know, all the years I've known you, um, you're engulfed in this. I know you've taken a step back, but this is just part of your DNA. Can you really say that you'll just can forget sports gambling altogether and be completely removed from this, or can you never leave? No, I, I, I'm ready to, to leave on the, and pretty soon. What we have now is after dealing with this pandemic – I'm, I'm uh, itching to get back to the States because I have a lot of relatives that are, you know, 75 plus. I want to, I want to, there's a lot of these people I haven't seen for years. So I want to kind of make the rounds and get reacquainted with, you know, I have a very big family kind of spread out, California, Colorado, New York, Florida. I want to spend more time in the States. And, you know, the, I have certain things that could maybe continue with me in the States, but I never really was, doing the, you know, working in the States, there might be a few ways I can set up things to have some kind of an income while I'm in the States, but I'm not going to be like on the phones or, or even doing stuff on the computer from the States. Cause I have that fear back from the 1980s of, you know, having, having any kind of legal problems. Absolutely. I know I, I'm trying to set everything up. I've been going crazy paying, you know, big amounts of taxes and everything to get myself set up. But I would say within the next, you know, six months to a year, I'm going to go into a semi, uh, semi, uh, you know, retirement mode. And maybe uh, my my key employee, who's, you know, kind of helped make me a lot of money, I want to kind of leave it to him. And then he'll trim the business down. So it's manageable for him. And maybe with a few people, they'll keep some things going. And maybe I'll have a little bit of an earn from it. But I just don't want to have to deal with the everyday worrying about win-loss and, you know, all the things that can happen. So in, in the United States in the last two years, book, uh, sports books have, have propagated all over the country, and, and they're, just, they're just everywhere now, these regulated sports books. And um, their tolerance for any type of, I don't even want to say sharp action, but just even high limits or anything is, is just so far removed from what it was back in, even in the 70s and the 80s. Um, in the 70s and 80s, you'd be getting down. You were telling me you were booking guys 30 dimes without a flinch. Today, to get down 30 dimes, that would be, you know, a monster. It's impossible. Um, what has changed? Why do you think this is the way it is? And do you see this ever going back to what it was? Well, basically, the, the people that are making all the money in the business are mostly on the betting side. So what happens is, everybody wants to be a bookmaker and you ha you have uh, of a hundred, you know, offices, there's like 80 of them where guys open up bookmaking offices with like a $200,000 bankroll. I mean, where they could get knocked out the first week, you know, thinking they have no clue what they're getting themselves into. Um, the, the, the reason that places take very little is because the, the betting side has gotten so sophisticated and the games move so much, uh, even though like most lines are just kind of copied and cloning and vanilla, when there is a move on a game, they move a lot. Back in the early 80s, there was not that much movement on games. There was a lot of times where I was moving stuff for people where one guy was ordering a game minus six and a half and another guy was ordering the other side plus seven. And I could just put both bets in my pocket and hope that it wouldn't fall. Now that never happens. It seems like 
a lot of you know stuff opens 40 and goes to 65 in baseball or a, a college football game opens 11 and goes to 13 and they have 14. So I, I'm just saying, and there's a lot of manipulation. And, and I, I think, I just think it's embarrassing for the business that the amounts went down so much from my day, but I was also stupid to take so high because I created these situations with very big figures so that when you had a, a guy not pay or slow pay or whatever, it was a huge issue. So I was partially stupid, probably should have been doing things for half the amount that I was, or maybe even less than half the amount. But then over the course of time, um, I realized that the amounts now are, are so much less. Because back in those early 80s, there were five or six other guys in the New York area that were taking tens, tens and 20s, I mean, 10K and 20K on, on sports, including like college basketball and stuff, like it was nothing. I wasn't that out of the ordinary. To take, uh, yeah. I was just dealing a little thinner. But every year, as it got into the offshore and everything like that, the 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 style of of the people that were opening up these offices, they were one was smaller than the next, and I guess they all would get hurt early and then start cutting cutting down limits or whatever to survive. The ones that did survive. You know, given inflation and, and given, you know, you would think that limits would go up. Um, and exactly. It's just, you know, it's just gotten worse. I just, you know, I just. It's uh, insane. It's insane. Yeah. It makes it, no sense to me. So, the one, you know, with reg I know there's a lot of like these, you know, illegal guys that are just opening up little rinky dink. These college kids, they don't even have a 200 dime bankroll. Some of these kids have, you know, five dimes to their name and they're booking. Um, how about these like big European companies coming, you know, like a William Hill and all these other guys coming from Europe and then just, you know, going and, and spreading out through the States um, where, you know, they're, they're, they're just kicking anybody out with a half a brain. Um, you know, why, you know, why is the tolerance so low? Is it, do you make more money just dealing small to recreational guys? And is there a lack of talent to be able to pit sharps against each other? My feeling is that the, the employees that these places hire are not worthy of, of being, you know, the ones that are involved in moving lines and stuff, they, 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 they don't have any talent at all, so they have to get rid of anybody sharp. But the scary thing to me is that even like with the rules in Vegas and stuff, that in Vegas, a game could go, you could lay six, a game could go to six and a half, and later on, you need to take six and a half, and they're the only ones that have it. And they don't want you betting both sides of a game, even if – I mean, it make, it's like a, something that they used to get mad about in 1977. I mean, they, it, they would take the plus six and a half bet from anybody in the world that didn't lay them six in the game. But they wouldn't take it from, from me because, you know, and half the time – I don't even remember. I have guys playing in the apps and whatever. We don't even remember what we have because we're going all day long with hundreds of plays. And then every once in a while, our account gets turned off at a place. And we're like, why? And then it turns out to be that we bet both sides of a game. It's the stupidest rule I've ever heard in my life. They'll take the bet from anybody in the world except for somebody that bet the other side. It, 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 that, to me, makes me you know, want to get out of the business because <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's, it's so retarded. It doesn't make any sense. I'll even give you one better. There was a time we laid seven on a game and there was an injury. The line went down to six and a half. They wouldn't even let me take plus six and a half on a game I laid seven on. That's so, hilarious. Uh, you know, it, it just, they, yeah. they, it's just – it's crazy. I don't understand it yeah. either. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, don't, I also don't like the places – that put the sharper players with like a 10 or 15 second delay. The one thing I've done when I've booked is I said, look, I'll lower the limits of a guy that I know I'm not going to beat. Or like if a group comes in, you know, one of these, you know, tout services, whatever, if, if you're going to get 18 bets at once. So I'll lower everybody to a nickel or a dime because I only take five dimes normally, whatever. But I, I, I will never put a guy on a delay because that irritates the hell out of me when I'm playing. I don't have time to play in a place. And then while I'm waiting to see if I get it or not, I've made four other plays. I mean, I, I'm nonstop. They, they slow you down. It's ridiculous. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The delay. And there's more, more and more places. Even the, the big places now are putting in delays, especially, you know, on the live. It could be in between half inning, like after a quarter or after a half inning, like, like they need it. And, and it makes no sense. I mean, it just, 
the 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 bigger the, the you know they are, the less they should need to have. They have all these guys have auto move, so they're only going to get one bet at the price, and they can cancel the bets if it's a wrong price, and then and then it moves automatically. They could set it on you know whatever they want for each customer. There's so much uh, sophistication, but. It, but betting a game live, betting a game live, other than a, a, a time, like, you know, a timeout or a stoppage, you know, that's essentially the bookmakers t- getting a free roll on you with these delays. Well, yeah, not only, yeah, not only, especially like in tennis. Not only that, but I don't do that because of that. In other words, I haven't watched. One of the things is I don't like to watch games because it makes my blood pressure go up when I see the ref make a bad call. So I stopped watching sporting events about. I'd say 15 years ago. I'll watch something if I know I have an unbelievably small decision. I might put something on to watch. But if I actually have like a need in the game for a decent amount of money, I can't watch. I'll watch the scoreboard, and God forbid the scoreboard puts up, you know, uh, Dallas Stars one nothing, and then they take down the one because the goal was disallowed, and then they all of a sudden they put it up for the other side. They make mistakes on the scoreboard. That hurts me emotionally, but I can't watch the games on TV. Yeah, nice yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. I love hearing that. Ribs, thank you so much for coming on. It really means a lot to me. You're a, you're a mentor of mine. I really, really admire you. I really appreciate. It. I know you're a busy guy, and um, I know you don't give interviews to anybody. And this is uh, I really uh, feel so privileged to have you share some of your knowledge and and spend some time talking about your career and talking about the state of the industry. And um, I wish you the best of luck in retirement. Um, and um, Look forward to seeing you soon, bud. All right. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ribs. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, Ribs just knows so much in the business. And it was a real candid interview. You know, he doesn't hold anything back. Very honest about how emotional things get. You know, he's been at the peaks and valleys. He's seen it all. And um, it's tough, you know, going through losing days and... um, you know, he talked about not wanting to watch certain games if he has big positions on it. You know, he's been doing it for 40 years, but he still goes through stuff that all of us gamblers go through. And it's hard to be a robot and kind of disconnect from the emotional roller coaster that this business provides. Um, and, you know, he's very honest about that. And, uh, and the guy's been doing it for 40 years. So he's seen and done so much. And he's gone broke, and he's been on top where he is now. And uh, he really, like, you know, the old saying, you know, he really has forgotten what most people ever learn. You know, there's times where I would sit with him or I would call him up, and he would just have to say one or two sentences. I would kind of tell him my problem and what I think, you know, a theory of mine or what this is about. And sometimes he'll just say things to me, just one or two sentences that are just written. He knows that's all I need, you know, he knows how to light that bulb in my head, um, he has a great way of teaching, a great way of kind of like sharing wisdom, um, he's just, just unbelievable, like, he's such a great teacher, and, and, and he just knows this business, you know, to be successful in this, just like ribs, you have to be able to live, breathe, and eat this business, you gotta be able to do it all day, every day, and you got to put the tens of thousands of hours in, um, and, and watching him do it, um, seeing his work ethic, you know, motivated me to work just as hard, and and I hope that this motivates others, you know, hard work pays off, and, and, and I know it's like, you know, just regular, you know, what I, old sayings, or, you know, okay, I heard that one before, but it's the truth, especially in this game, you know, the more you work, the more you see, things start becoming second nature, and you just understand the business, understand how lines move, how bookmakers operate, you know, when something is good, when something isn't, you just, you just learn, and you just know things as you're doing it, and, um, and to actually see somebody like Ribs in action is is unbelievable. It's an art. It's like an art to see an uh, an artist paint. Like if you, you know, I I've had the luxury of watching him sitting next to him on a stage, watching him work, and and, and he's nonstop. The guy just doesn't stop. It you know he's on a hundred percent caffeine high or whatever it is, and he just goes goes goes. There is no you know breaks. There's none of that. 
and um and that's why he's on top and that's why you know he's had the success he's had and that's why he's so well respected by everybody in the business again these are the type of people that don't really give interviews and obviously his name is not ribs but you know I do these to kind of share with my audience and just share with you guys you know just because you know you know you think that the best people are the guys on TV or the guys that do a lot of interviews or the guys that are radio personalities TV personalities social media personalities but the real real knowledge of this business are guys like ribs guys that live breathe and eat it but that own the people that are in the midst of the business that are that are that are ingrained in this business you know that are part of it no people like ribs you see what i'm saying so it's um and, I, and it's a treat because he don't do interviews you know what i mean and i asked him as and i'm like we'll use an alias you know and he was fine with it and um you know he's my friend i know you know he wouldn't do it just for anybody and um and i really really it's such a treat to have somebody like that just speak for an hour and kind of break things down so I kind of long-winded uh, conclusion, but I just, you know, it just deserves it. That's how much respect I have for the guy. Thanks so much for the time. Until next time.